0: You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. I'm sorry. I'm not doing it the wrong way. This is Play-By-Play Play Cast, the world's number one sports media podcast. Wait, what? Okay. Nobody's fact-checking it. Just keep going. Here we go. Who the hell is
1: Happy Gilmore? Got all
0: camera right john sure i did all right because the red
1: light was not on the podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster oh you can stick me in some kind of italian boat because that one is gondola now from new york
0: really all the big ones are from new york your host joe godet it's still joel yeah he will not be able to see very well cotton It's episode number 163 of Play-By-Play Cast, and I am exhausted. It is college football game week. Welcome back into the podcast, everybody. My name is Joel Godet. It is the podcast for Play-By-Play broadcasters, about Play-By-Play broadcasters, hosted by one, a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparation of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. Not only is it college football game week, That is on Saturday as Ball State hosts Indiana at Lucas Oil Stadium, which will be pretty cool. Uh, It's also volleyball game week. They have a doubleheader today as you listen to this and as I record it because it's 109. Uh, (laughs) I've got the second half of that, but I've got to film the first half of that. Uh, Soccer also played on Thursday, filmed that, uh, and then took care of all the video board responsibilities I had to get done this week. And a couple of hype videos and a couple of other website videos. And uh, I was at adult summer camp that last weekend because it's the last weekend I've got for nine months. <laughs> so, uh, it's been a time crunch. It's been, uh, it's been a little busy. Uh, but looking forward, like, looking forward to doing it. That's what we do this for. And I've said to people throughout fall camp... They're like, are you ready for the season? I'm like, I was ready yesterday. Like, I just want to call a game. Tired of going to practice. Talking about practice, man. I just want to call a game. Practice. Uh, So it's gonna be good to finally get to broadcast uh, some live action on uh, on Saturday. Uh, With that said, Brett Dolan is our guest this week on episode number 163 of the podcast. He will be broadcasting Georgia and Vanderbilt this weekend on the Touchdown Radio Network. But in addition to being a national voice of college football, he is also the television voice of the Arkansas Razorbacks on the SEC Network, produced by and at the University of Arkansas. Does a ton of their basketball and their baseball and softball and gymnastics, and is involved in about, if not more, than 100 events for Arkansas over the course of the year. Before that, you might know him from the baseball world, because he spent a ton of time in the minor leagues and at AAA with Iowa and Tucson before eventually working uh, in the big leagues with the Houston Astros. He was uh, one of three voices with the Houston Astros, Dave Raymond, of course, Milo Hamilton, and Brett Dolan from 2006 to 2012, and then stayed in Houston and worked in a television capacity, uh, covering the Astros as well. So, ton of different perspectives to get to in this conversation, and some things I think you'll find really interesting in terms of when you know you're ready to make the jump to the big leagues, and how you go about making the jump to the big leagues, and what it's quite like when you're in that chair, and maybe what shocks you about when you first arrive at the Major League level and, and how you get adjusted and acclimated. Um, I had a lot of fun doing this conversation, and I hope you guys get uh, the same enjoyment I had of uh, out of it as well. Uh, so with that being said, we start with Brett Dolan, and by finding out, I mean, I kind of gave you the rundown,
1: but precisely what he does. You know, it's a great question, and it's one I don't know if my family can answer, and even my <laughs> colleagues in the industry have a hard time, because I tell them my day job is at the University of Arkansas, And I'm doing a lot of the SEC Network Plus telecast, and that's everything from women's basketball to men's basketball, a lot of baseball, softball, the occasional volleyball or uh, gymnastics event. So when basketball season gets here, they say, well, you're doing Razorback basketball. I said, well, not really. I mean, I'm doing some, but I'm I'm not the radio voice. And I really confuse them in the fall when they say, well, you're doing a Razorback game, right? I said, no, I'm doing touchdown radio. It's what I do every weekend in football season. So then they really start to get confused about, What I do. And then when I sneak away in in baseball season and maybe do uh, a collegiate tournament or some youth events around the country or or some uh, basketball events with Triple Crown sports like the Women's NIT preseason, postseason, men's Cancun, then by this time they're all confused exactly what I do. So I guess the the, uh, shorter answer is I try and string together as many games as I possibly can play by play around my Arkansas commitments on TV.
0: Uh, How confusing was that? Well, that's not the right way to play it. How how difficult was that from your standpoint of weaving that all together and getting yourself to a point uh, over these last couple of years where you're like, all right, I've got, I'm pulling from all of these six different baskets and I feel like I'm in a really, really good spot and and fulfilling myself professionally.
1: Well, it's a great question. And it's one, I think you almost go week to week and month by month, because every time you think you have it figured out when you're putting together a freelance schedule, especially around a, a somewhat stringent work schedule. Uh, I don't know if you ever really have the answers to that. One of the reasons why I left home and you know kind of left my kids in, in Houston and came to Arkansas on more of a full-time basis was the freelance world was just getting crazy. Mm. For a couple of years, networks were doing Remy telecasts where instead of needing me in the Southwest region, people in studios were calling games. And while that has changed somewhat in recent years, you know, now you go from the ESPN3s of the world producing a a large quantity of games to schools themselves taking on their own inventory. So the the whole landscape has changed so dramatically, not over the last six or seven years, but even the last two or three years. So, you know, putting together a a freelance schedule is not easy. And and as you know, one of the toughest aspects is, is that Uh, There are certain weeks in the calendar year from a football schedule, thinking of that first and foremost, where uh, there's teams that are playing non-conference games in November or bye weeks in September where everybody's either looking for work or everybody needs work. So a lot of times it's the same weekends we're talking about and and getting a calendar or a schedule to cooperate just doesn't always work.
0: Well, and you kind of wound up in a nice spot too where you've got this this base of Arkansas, but then the fact that they let you go out and and call Vanderbilt, Georgia, when there's an Arkansas game going on where they could say, hey, we're going to have you do X, Y, and Z, that maybe is not what you ultimately want to be doing uh, on a given Saturday.
1: Well, there's truth to that, and I was fortunate when I put together this deal here with Arkansas. I had the touchdown radio schedule, which is just real. I think it's the best uh, national radio schedule out there, and that's comprising the Westwood Ones and the Compasses and Sports USA's. I think we've got the best schedule this year, but I said, I need to be able to do that because if I'm doing the television games at Arkansas, obviously that doesn't comprise football because the SEC network's coming in ESPN, ESPNU, CBS. uh, There's not a need for me on weekends. Now I might miss a volleyball game. I might miss some basketball games coming and going on Fridays and Sundays, but I need to be able to be committed to this. And then I'm going to make it a priority to be here for a bulk of the games. Um, But if we do 110, I might do 95 um, here, which is still a a big number. And and I'm another believer, too, in addition to me needing to be able to do some games, whether it's a Cancun challenge over the week of Thanksgiving or football, is that having the same voice do 100 games is not great. I, I think you do need a little bit of variety and the occasional fill in voice who can do some games, who can provide. A little different perspective
0: well what is calling 100 games of inventory like in in one spot across kind of the full spectrum spectrum of sports
1: yeah it's a little goofy i I spoke to our students two weeks ago and i told them that uh, the most games i've ever called in a year was 230 but that's when i had basically 195 (laughs) astros games as part of my my calendar and then i could throw in some football and basketball um it's a lot um i will say though when i'm not doing games or when i'm not having two games a week or, you know, eight, 10, 12 games a month. It feels weird. Right. Uh, That weekend before Labor Day is probably the one weekend of the summer where I have two days where I'm not traveling or not doing anything. And it's really hard. It just doesn't feel right. Um, So it's kind of what we do. It's our lifestyle. It's what we enjoy. And I tell people there's a lot of friends we have in the real world that spend a lot of time on their jobs and then they have some hobbies on the weekends or nights where they spend a lot of time on that. We as play-by-play guys just kind of blur our hobbies and our jobs together. And it's really what we do for a bulk of our time. Um, you know, there are a couple of months, Joel, that, you know, November is one, I think February and March are others where you get the, the crossover. And I think that's the biggest challenge when maybe I'm going from radio football to TV basketball and you're preparing for multiple games um, or, or a baseball event where there might be six games on a weekend where you're preparing for four different teams, that's where it really gets to be a bit of a challenge because you do find yourself is just in your preparation trying to make sure that you're putting everything in the right box and you're not, you're not blurring the teams or the sports too much.
0: Arkansas being your ultimate base, though, I'm curious, because I go through this a lot at Ball State now because the Mid-American Conference produces, for the most part, the schools all produce their own games for everything outside of football. Um, How do you handle, in in a couple of different directions here, number one, um, you're ultimately employed by Arkansas, but you're not the Arkansas broadcaster, so like you're doing an SEC network broadcast, but your paycheck is coming from the universe, from one of the two schools involved in the game. So how you handle you know calling things down the line but also knowing for the most part kind of who your audience is and who your bosses are that's number one but number two is also how you handle a preparation standpoint and and talking to coaches and players and getting information um when they when when you're a a university employee so to speak and then even if like to grow that out to a to a touchdown radio standpoint like if you're doing an sec game this week um being an Arkansas employee that walks into a meeting room with a coach to say, Hey, I want to pick your brain about things. Um, what's the best way that you put coaches' minds at ease? Um, because it's a weird business that way, and you always kind of get like side looks, I feel like.
1: Well, no, it's, it's, a, it's a good question, and there's a lot to unpack. I would say starting working backwards from a touchdown radio standpoint, I, I don't think that's a big issue. Um, I, I think coaches will recognize me more for that event than they will my day job. But having said that, when we are hosting a conference game or a non-conference game, baseball, softball, basketball, we actually spend more time with the opposing coaches than we do our own in in the sense that we're around our teams on a somewhat regular basis. We know the storylines. It may be more of a week-to-week who's playing well, who's injured, who's not injured, what's the game plan, than it is, tell me your story. Um, And I think we spend a lot of time, whether it's at shoot arounds or at conference calls with these opposing coaches to make it feel like we understand their team almost as well as we do our own. And there's probably at times in the telecast where I think we spend more time trying to tell the stories of these opposing teams. Um, you know, the home home broadcaster might be able to tell a wonderful story about a player, but you will only tell it once a year over 30 games. But if we have, lsu baseball for two games on the weekend we're going to tell that story one of one time in those two games um and it also helps us i think alleviate a little bit of that concern that this is an arkansas broadcast your first question and point i think was a good one because while i'm paid here at arkansas and our coaches fully look at me as an extension of their programs in some senses as far as um maybe the trust level or putting their program in a good position to succeed as far as uh, showcasing the positives and maybe not emphasizing the negatives along those same lines. The way I approach it is that when we're doing a non-conference game, you're going to get some pretty good enthusiasm when I'm calling something that goes well for Arkansas. And it may feel like more of an Arkansas telecast when it is a non-conference game with the understanding that we're going to tell stories and we're going to share the best anecdotes we can from the opposing team. Now, when it becomes a conference game, when it becomes Arkansas against LSU or Mississippi State, uh, Arkansas women's basketball, it will be a little bit different. And I feel like coming from the Midwest originally, I have more of an enthusiastic style than, than some others. So my, my thought always is I'm going to get excited on the big plays and the big moments. And if one team has 10 and one team has five, regardless of who they are, it's going to feel like I'm getting pretty excited for the team that has more or does better or, or wins the game. So there is much more of a balance, I think, for these conference games than there are the non-conference games. But I, I suppose that the people locally always feel like I have maybe Arkansas's interests at heart maybe a little more than, than some of the other teams.
0: It is actually funny, as you were talking about it, I was thinking, like it's, it's easier to overcorrect almost because you talk so much about the opponent, you almost forget. Because you take for granted that you're around Arkansas or Ball State so much that uh, you just kind of feel like everybody knows those stories, so to speak, and you dive too much into an opponent, and it's you almost have to recheck it the other direction.
1: Oh, well, I, I think you're exactly right. I think from a trust standpoint, though, there will be times that I think opposing coaches will tell us something, or, or my analysts usually are former Arkansas players, so their allegiance to the programs are even bigger than mine because... They've been invested in it for so many years, and they played here, played at the different sports. There are times when coaches will tell us things that I would say to myself, you know, this would probably be something of interest for um, the Arkansas team, but but that never gets to a point where it would ever come back towards our coaches. Right. You know, if, some, if somebody might be able to play, but we're not sure, it's going to be a game-time decision, they're a little bit gimpy, uh, anything along the lines that we would come across in the course of our conversation is is always treated as if you know we're a neutral uh network broadcaster because the trust is is very important and i always say really the most enjoyable part of my job isn't necessarily calling the games it's really interacting with the coaches and and different coaches at different levels and sports because there's such enthusiasm for their programs and they're such good ambassadors and they have such positive outlooks as far as shaping young people's lives, that I just enjoy that conversation more so than just preparing for a game, but just how they go about their day-to-day work. And it's, it's nothing that I would ever violate when it comes to uh, a broadcast.
0: What do you enjoy about that atmosphere and the, and the college atmosphere and, and being around that on a daily basis as compared to, you know, a, a decade plus in, in Major League Baseball and being around a guys that a group of guys that live a, a very different lifestyle that way?
1: Yeah, it's, it's so different in many ways. And baseball is probably the most different of all the sports because of the volume of games. And it's really a day-to-day thing. And whether a team wins 10 to nothing or gets clobbered 11 to 2, the next day is just that. It's the next day where, you know, I think not just the passion in college sports, but the immediacy of fearing that every loss is going to turn into a three or four game losing streak or every win is going to be that that uh, program-defining win that could really set the team on the right stage. There's just the emotions, I think, of, of in their, their particular sports. But probably, you know, beyond that, I, I think these coaches really understand their role as far as being leaders of women and men. And, and they're, they're so good at uh, um, just kind of creating an athlete beyond the, the playing for surface or field or, or court to creating, you know, good citizens. And I think by the time you get to be a a major league baseball player at the age of 28, 29, you know, you're concerned about how they perform with your team. But when you're dealing with a 19 or a 20 year old, uh, there's still that possibility of the fact that they're not going to play a professional sports, but they could use this, this collegiate experience, maybe to coach on their own, maybe to become a good business person or community member. And I just love that. I just love that grooming. Young athletes, and, and maybe it's because I have a 17-year-old at home who soon will be off to college, or a 13-year-old. But I really respect people that can uh, get invested in young people's lives and, and want the best for them, whatever that may be.
0: Let me ask you about your uh, your progression uh, through uh, for, for, from uh, that age to where you are now. Um, what was your what was your goal when you were 22 years old, out of college? got into baseball and was that kind of the the track that you had you had locked in on or or how did you predict or see things unfolding from there?
1: Well not only was it the track that I wanted to follow it was probably something going back to when I was 12 13 years old It's what I wanted to do as far as broadcast professional baseball and hopefully major league baseball and when I look back on it now I'm not sure why I had that dream other than we were kids and you know dreams are free and you might as well dream big and and then, try and follow them. Uh, growing up on a farm in rural Iowa, I was as far removed from the path of going to, say a Syracuse to jump into their broadcast program or or to think about the possibility of of uh, you know becoming a reality. But it's what I wanted to do and and once I went off to college, we had the benefit of some uh, radio experience with the student station and some baseball and some women's basketball, but nothing like people have available to them today. so yeah. you know, once I got out, it was a matter of how do I get to the minor leagues. And when I got into the minor leagues at a ball, it was, how do I get to a double A or triple A? How do I get the experience? How do I make a better tape? And how do I get a shot at at the major league level? So, you know, I spent 12 years in the minors trying to get to the majors with some filling games and some extra contests around that, whether it was with the Expos or the occasional spring training game, or maybe a, a Brewers or Diamondbacks game. But um, you know, that was the goal, Joe. It was, it was, how do I get to the major leagues and how do I stay? And I figured out how to get there. I just didn't figure out, I guess, how to stay.
0: Uh, first off, tell me about that Expos experience too. Cause that was that your first dip at the big league level?
1: Yeah, it was. I think the first extended, I would go up and maybe do uh, you know a few innings in September with the diamondbacks, or I would do a spring training game because I was in Tucson at AAA and I was around three teams in my town. And then of course, You know, Phoenix was just up the road and there were there were a lot of things that I could kind of do a one time opportunity on. But when the Expos came up, there were two years in 2003 and four when they were really looking for people to help out on the road with their broadcaster, Elliot Price. And, you know, I I got to them quickly and, and they came back and said, we'd like you to be in Phoenix and we'd like you to be maybe in Kansas City what about Colorado? What about here? And for me, it was, yeah, I'm, I'm going to find a way to do this because um, at that time, I think the best way to get to the major leagues when when I was in the minors was to have big league experience. Now that's not the case. It, it's truly not the case. You see people coming from different backgrounds, people that are 26, 27. When I was in A, you better be in your mid-30s. You better have a, a big league tape of some sort. So for me, it was, this is a great way to do it, whether it's nine games this year or ten games. Let's make the most of it. Let's be around the big league atmosphere, and let's see if I can learn something and put together a tape that might benefit me.
0: What struck you as being most different when you first got exposed to the big league level that, that required the biggest adjustment? Because um, I know the first time I walked in a major league clubhouse, like having been in the minors for five or six years, like you're like, all right, I've been around baseball a little bit, um, but it was just a different cat and I felt really out of place.
1: (laughs) No, I agree. I think two things come to mind. I think one is the clubhouse, because if you're the voice of a AAA team, you're really the only media guy who's around on an everyday basis, and you cease to become a a media guy per se, and you become part of the traveling party of 30 or 31 people, and you're on the same flights at 3 a.m., and you're on the same buses, so you become part of them. And what I enjoyed about that was, If I needed anything, if I needed a thought or a comment from a guy, I could walk into the clubhouse and get it. If I needed an interview, it wasn't a problem. If I needed a story, sometimes they were willing to come up and tell me, you know, hey, Brad, here's a story. You might want to use that picture. I went to high school with him, you know, stuff like that, that you do not get at the major league level. And you're right about it being a different animal. I mean, you walk in that clubhouse and and you need a quick interview or a story you know, everybody's in the training room or everybody's in the dining room, which are off limits to media, which wouldn't be the case at AAA. And there's an introduction required. And, hey, could I talk to you maybe after BP? And everything becomes much more layered and, and much more difficult, maybe until you've been there for three, four, five years or or whatever that proving time frame is. So that is very different as far as walking into the clubhouse. And then probably the obvious one from just calling games is that, you know, the crowd noise, you learn that you don't have to talk through everything. I, you know, I was doing games at Tucson where our facility was the big league spring training site, which was probably too big for a triple A team. We're playing games in June and July when it's 108 degrees at game time and there's 1500 people in the crowd and they are absolutely smoked. So, you know, you go to a big league venue where there's 25 or 30,000, you can let the the crowd noise be part of your broadcast you don't have to provide every single visual or, or audio cue because there's there's nothing else going on in the ballpark
0: it's almost like getting to the show is the difficult part and then the actual job of doing the the physical play-by-play in that regard becomes a little bit easier because you you don't have to do as much you can let the crowd play its part the I, I don't know maybe maybe I'm extrapolating too much
1: no I think I think you're onto to that. And I think that's the hard thing. I think early when there'd be a crowd of 35 or 40,000, you'd have a big home run call and you just keep plowing. That's his 10th of the year. And you don't have to continue. You can allow the crowd noise to, to waft through the radio and then you can come back and, and punctuate with some education as far as, you know, that's his fifth home run this week or his 10th this year, whatever it is, you don't have to just keep talking. You can let the crowd noise, kind of play a role in that and the other part is those of us that have come from the minors I think we're pretty accustomed to calling nine innings every night and sometimes you um, hold a little back because this could be a three and a half hour game and and you have no help you don't have an analyst you don't have Uh, a a number two broadcaster, where in the big leagues, there's always a second guy there. You might be doing six innings, (laughs) a fourth guy. I mean, they're they're coming from all directions, but you might do six innings of play by play or three or four or five. And you can really concentrate a lot of your notes and your stories into those innings and not have to conserve them for the course of a nine inning game. So it's it's a lot different in that regard, too.
0: We all think I feel like we reach a point where we say, I'm ready, I feel like I can be a big league broadcaster at this point in our career. Um, at what point did you have that realization in Tucson? Um, and then what was the process like to get you to Houston from there?
1: Well, I've to think back on that time. I think once you get a little bit of taste, whether it's you know spring training games or the occasional filling game, it only whets the appetite for more. And I thought I was ready, and, and I don't know if I was. Probably when I was in my you know, low 30s, uh, I felt like the first five or six years, we all feel like, hey, I've done four years of minor league ball, or five years, I'm ready, and and I wasn't. I think people now are doing a couple of years, and if they're good enough or if they have a name through football or basketball, they can jump over a lot of people that have been in the minor leagues for a number of years. I don't know if that's right. I don't know if it's wrong. I just know it's a different landscape now than it was 10 years ago. But for me at that point, as I said before, I, I felt like I needed to get a few more big league games under my belt. So I wasn't just Brett, the AAA broadcaster. I was Brett, the AAA broadcaster who fills in on spring training games and Expos games. And I would tell people, you know, part of that for me was just updating the resume every year. It just doesn't go from six years in two, from five years to six years in Tucson or from 11 years, or 12 years in the minors it was last year he was able to do these games with big league games or he won this award or he did the all-star game at Pawtucket, which kept pushing a little more up that hill just in case you know somebody was ready for an opening the other part is once i had spent 12 years in the minors i felt like i had a pretty good base of people that i knew whether it was a, a handful of executives a few big league broadcasters because I would see them in spring training. I would take an off day in the season, drive up to then bank one ballpark or in September, I'd spend as much time as I could there. So I would know if enough guys were, if there was an opening, I could, I could send an email. I could pick up the phone and not feel like I was a, a foreigner. I could, I could identify myself as somebody that they had met this year or last year and maybe get a thought or a comment or some advice that would help me or maybe separate me just a little bit from hundreds of others that were applying. And when Houston came open, I felt like it was, it was going to be a good situation because they were looking for somebody to be available all year, but he wasn't going to call every game. So there would be a few guys with big league teams that might not be willing to give up a full schedule for three quarters of a schedule. Um, They were going to want somebody with, at least a little bit of big league experience because working with Milo Hamilton was, was not going to be a picnic with, with his background and with the number of years he had been doing it and with his standards, his expectations. And then my former manager had had worked with the Astros as a, a special assistant. And I was able to use him as well to say, who do I need to contact? And can you at least put in a good word before I send my stuff to them? So, I think that's probably a lot of factors that are kind of going in, but Joel, I just don't believe we just send a, a link or a tape anymore. And someone says, I like it. I, I think they have to know who you are or someone has to tell them why they should pay attention. Then your stuff has to be probably good enough. You have to have a few more people that will vouch for you. You have to get in front of an interview um, room and be able to, to win that. So but you have to be able to get off to a good start. You have to be able to identify yourself as as a legitimate candidate for this job, someone who has the experience, and, and it doesn't hurt to know a few people as well in, and that are involved in the process.
0: This may be a silly question. Um, it, it feels very like TED Talkish. Um, but w- what's it like to go into like a big league interview room, and is it is it anything different than what you would experience if you walked into a normal job, or is it is it a Is it a different kind of experience uh, to to sit in front of a director of broadcasting or a GM at that level and say, hey, we want you to be the voice of the team. Tell us why.
1: Well, it's a little bit intimidating. You're right, because you realize that uh, they've gone to a lot of work and gone through a long process to get to this point. And now we're kind of down to where we need to find some separation. And I'm probably not violating anybody's trust, but when I went to Houston, at the time, they ended up hiring two of us, Dave Raymond, who's now with the Rangers TV, and myself to uh, be part of this team. But I think other people that were involved, I think Matt Hicks was involved. He's now with the Rangers radio. Dave Jagler was involved. He quickly found his way to Washington. Scott Fransky was involved in the process. He's been the longtime voice of the Phillies. I think Wayne Hagen was involved, who was a longtime number one. <laughs> I tell our people, or I told them after the fact, You know, there are some teams that will bring in four people for an interview. And after the fact, you may never really hear from two or three of them again, or they may they may never contend for another big league job. I said, you filled a room full of people that have made a living broadcasting big league baseball. Uh, You know, and we had a multi-layered interview, as I'm sure most teams do, where maybe you you, uh, interact with one executive on a tour, you interact with another one at lunch. But then you sit down in the meeting room where it's the team president and all of a sudden the owner, Drayton McClain, comes through and it changes the oxygen in the room. Because whatever you were talking about or however you were trying to sell yourself, you better be able to do that again in the next 15 or 20 minutes because his vote is pretty darn important in this process.
0: Yeah, that's that uh, That would catch me by surprise. I mean, I guess you would expect it coming, but I feel like it would still catch me by surprise a little bit. <laughs> um, what did you learn most Well, a couple of different ways to look at this. What did you learn most from working with someone like Milo Hamilton? And and I guess just overall what that experience was like um, when you first got to the big leagues.
1: It certainly wasn't easy. Uh, I I enjoyed large chunks of it. Um, Milo's expectations were probably higher and different than anybody else. And he had a certain expectation of how things would be done, even from small things like you know, you carried the last two notes of the anthem coming out of commercial break. Why did you do that? Well, the, the singer went extremely long. The PA announcer gave him a 30 second introduction. The timing just wasn't perfect. Well, we don't do that. There's, there's the expectation that we don't do that. And there were some things that were hard to digest with that. Um, and, and he, he listened to every game. He was a a critic as well. I think, that helped make you a little bit better because there was no such thing as taking it off day, whether it was the eighth game of a trip or it was the day game following a night game on a travel day. There were certain things he wanted you to do. And and then consequently, when you were in the booth with him, it was so very different than being in the booth with Dave. We might make Seinfeld references. We might, (laughs) uh, have have a little younger conversation where with Milo that that was not going to work. So it was a very different product, and and it was it was a challenge. Uh, I, I look back on it with with fondness. Uh, Dave is still a good friend. Uh, you know, Milo and I had had same friends, if you could believe that, with a very different age group. We were both Iowa graduates, and a, a good friend of his was was a mentor of mine. So there were there were a few connections there as well, but. Uh, um you know Joel, even after the fact several years removed, it's still somewhat difficult to try and describe to people that weren't there because it just was different than probably anything I'd experienced before, and if I'm fortunate enough to get back, it'll be very different then than it was um fourteen years ago
0: you know does that make you better in 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 several different respects though because I mean obviously you're in a booth with someone of his caliber um that is gonna hold the line to a certain standard in 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 a technical regard, um, and then you know, yeah, like the the national anthem thing would drive me nuts too. I feel like if I was in that situation, I'd be like, well, it's two notes. Um, but were there times where you started to look at some things differently and say like, well, okay, if we do this, there maybe there's a reason we do that, or, or I don't know. Are there are there just ways to look at minutia differently, or or did you take in anything through a different lens because of having a, an older school feel over your shoulder.
1: I'm of the belief that I think we can always continue to get better. And the one way we do that is being confronted with different ways of doing our our product or, or how we go about producing our play by play because we all fall into very similar habits. We use very similar words to describe things, our our cadence, our tone, our preparation. For the most part, Doesn't change a lot. And when we're confronted with somebody who does things very differently, maybe that's that's beneficial for us. Um, The one thing about Milo is when we would interact with him on speaking engagements and the Astros were very different because they expected their voices to be out in the community. It's, It's a tradition he had started. We were expected to do it. I'm so thankful that that was part of of our job. And the one thing I would watch him is he was so good at working a room. He was a phenomenal speaker, whether it was a a crowd of 50 or whether there were 2,000 people there at a baseball dinner. He was so good at that. I think I'm a pretty good speaker in in that regard, and I think I picked up a lot from him. There were things from a broadcast standpoint where he was very statistical-oriented that I'm not sure I would follow suit with, even had I worked with him for 20 years. As far as the number of triples, where that ranks on the team, where that ranks in the league, to me that's a little bit much. But that was part of what he did. That was his his preparation. A lot of times with was statistical rather than story based. And for me, with radio, I felt like there was a lot of time for me to tell anecdotes and stories and try and relate these players to the listener. Um, so, but there were always things I felt like, you know, we could we could pick up from one of the challenges was is that he came from an era where there was really one broadcaster and occasionally they might have a second where one would be on radio working by himself one would be on tv if they had tv games so it was very different when all of a sudden now in in 2006 there's three radio broadcasters there's two or three tv broadcasters because he was still the voice uh you know there's some broadcasters that might say, you know, I'm not the voice of the Reds. I'm I'm one of the voices. Well, he very much was the voice of the team. And and there was a, a certain pecking order. And, and that was fine. We understood that. But it was probably different than um, the perspective for a lot of guys that go into big league positions today where they don't have that guy who was the number one broadcaster and the Hall of Fame broadcaster for so many years of his career.
0: Uh, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I want to go back to what you said at the front end of that answer um, in terms of the presentation and public speaking. And uh, I think listening to, you know, if people are sitting here listening just to the way that you talk and the way that your voice sounds, um, even to, I mean, if you YouTube Brett Dolan, like there there's an audio demo that will come up and the first thing on it is the ending of Matt Cain's Perfect Game. And... It's not your team, so there's a certain um level of or, or, or lack of level of excitement there. Like you're not gonna go over the top. But when I heard it, I was like, that seems just right. Like it's you can tell there's an excitement, you can tell something historic just happened, but at the same time, like I still feel like I'm like I'm not being inundated to where it's uncomfortable. It was an easy listen to it. Um how did you develop the style that you have and, um, and, and why is the way you do it important to you?
1: Well, first of all, I appreciate the kind words on, on Matt Kane's perfect game. It was unusual. I think it was an 11 to nothing game. So the outcome was not in doubt. The only question was would we witness history? And the Astros back then were not very good. But having said that, when Kane accomplished that goal, I believe it was the 22nd perfect game in big league history. I think it was the 13th in National League history. And Joel, when you think about it, of those 22, there were several that occurred before radio even existed. So, you know, there haven't been many people that have been challenged with being at the call of, a, of the final out of a perfect game in, in the history of our sport going back over well over 100 years. So to me, it was about capturing the moment, whether it was our guy or not. That was history, and that was baseball history. And, it, you know, it was certainly a big moment. For Matt Cain, to the larger part of that question, you know, I don't know if we ever stop uh, working on our presentation. It's still something to this day. I listen to every game I do, uh, whether it's on radio or TV. And I will say I feel like the more we do that, occasionally we miss things, whether it's inflection or tempo, listening to our analyst using the right stories at the right time. The one thing I think TV has taught me as I've evolved from much more TV than radio is the timing, you know, is when to use the anecdote or when to use the inflection. And and sometimes I think as I go back and I I review my stuff or listen, I'm better off when I go back and pop in a game from seven months ago or a year ago than I am the game last week where it's still fresh in my mind. But it's probably something, as long as I'm doing this for a career, I'm going to spend a lot of time reviewing my stuff and at the same time, listening to good young broadcasters like Adam Amin or, or some of the others that we hear on radio or television that I think are immensely talented and, and see if I can pick up something from them. And, and sometimes you're right. I think it is the way we utilize our words and it's the way we, we capture the big moments. But at the same time, if you're a baseball broadcaster and I know there's a lot of guys out there. We can capture the big home run of the big moment, but we have another three hours to fill as well. It's not just about creating uh, another highlight for the demo reel or link. It's about doing a good job over a long period of time. So I think even back in our younger days, when maybe we weren't as good as we were gonna be two or three years down the road, we could still capture the good home run call or we could still find the right words for a big play, a big touchdown or a game-winning basket but the longer we do it, the better we become over a longer period of time, where if someone says to us, hey, I want you to send me a full game for me to review, you don't start thinking, oh, crap, I got to find a game. There's one game that was a good first half, and then there was a good game where I had a good second half. And you just say, hey, here's the last five I've done. I'm not sure which one you would like, but just, just review it, because I feel like my work should be more consistent over a longer period of time. I think that's probably the goal and certainly the hope. And the understanding in there
0: that like little mistakes are not problems, so to speak. Like, I I feel like when you're younger, we always get into this idea that like, I, I remember listening to half innings that had to be perfect. And if I flubbed a word, it was like the end of the world, but we're talking extemporaneously for three and a half hours. Um, like you can make a brief mistake as long as the other three hours and 24 minutes are, are good. Like your, your, your overall good has to be what you're proud of.
1: I think that's a good point. And I think part of that is having a sense of humor. It's not just the experience to be able to handle a mistake or a minor mistake or a flub of some word, because even the best still do it. But I think it's, the ability to have some fun on the broadcast, to engage the listener, to make fun of yourself if you screw up something. Uh, I think that's probably something else going back to Milo Hamilton. He had a great sense of humor. And, and even though it didn't always come out, I, I think the one thing he was able to do was maybe engage or or captivate an audience if it came to a joke or a story as well. And I think you pick up a little bit of that and you realize that Maybe sometimes we're taking ourselves too seriously over the course of of a game or a season. And and that's easier said than done when you're in AA or AAA and you want to get to the major leagues and you're trying to find that right game and that right moment. And and you're so concerned about putting it together because I feel feel the pain of everybody who's trying to put together a, a demo link because it's an excruciating process. But you're right. When you can just look past a minor mistake or when you can add a little bit of humor or levity to the situation I think it goes a lot of a long ways towards towards making it a better broadcast and one that you're still comfortable with even if you aren't perfect
0: Brett if people want to uh, find you on the air or uh, on social media how do they go about tracking
1: you down I think Twitter's the best place Brett Dolan 24 uh, two T's in Brett and Brett and I try and keep up with just a running litany of, of where I'm at and and what games I'm doing and just in case anybody, has an interest, and uh, we have, as I mentioned before, a great schedule on Touchdown Radio this year. Week two, we have Texas A&M at Clemson. Week three, we've got the Aikman Bowl with Oklahoma at uh, UCLA, and then we're off and running. We finish with the Iron Bowl, and we'll have a lot of Arkansas games on SDC Network Plus, uh, and a few other events like the uh, the Women's NIT on CBS or, or the Men's Cancun Challenge over Thanksgiving on CBS. So. Usually I try and keep a running log of that on, on Twitter just in case someone's out there and wants to listen or uh, you know, drop me a note. All right, that's Brett Dolan joining us here.
0: If you take one thing and only one thing, and we do this a lot here on the podcast, um, what he said toward the end there, it's not about the highlight, doing a good job over a long period of time. Don't just have a great highlight or two. Do a good job over a long period of time. And listen, if you made a mistake here or there, but it's natural talking extemporaneously over the course of three hours and you were able to roll with it, maybe make fun of it, maybe nobody noticed. But for three hours, you were pretty solid. You had a really good day. But if for three hours you were just average, but you hit four really awesome highlights, well, okay, you've got four really awesome highlights. But how good were you top to bottom? So think about it that way. Um, Doing a good job over a long period of time. Many thanks to Brett for uh, joining us here on this week's edition of the podcast. I'm going to bed. And I'm going to wake up early and broadcast volleyball. And football. That's tomorrow as you're listening to this. It's actually tomorrow as I'm recording it. Things come at you fast. My name is Joel Gannett. This is Play by Play Cats.
1: And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.